0: Welcome to the podcast, English for Life in the UK. We've reached episode 10 of season 2 this week. We link some of our episodes to the official government guide for those wanting to become British citizens. It's called Life in the UK. Today we're doing some more history from that guide and in particular we're looking at the Stuart Kings and the Civil War. And it's Sheena who's going to start us off.
1: Oh, hello, Mark and John. Nice to see you. Hello,
2: Sheena.
1: Hiya. Um, How are you today, John?
2: Very well, thank you. Snowed yeah. in, but well.
1: You're snowed in. Good.
2: Snowed.
1: Right. So you've been doing lots of history research, I think. <laughs> yeah. And what about you, Mark? Are you snowed in as well?
0: Yes, lots of snow here as well, Sheena, as most of the north of England, I think, yeah. is covered in snow at the moment. But yes, I'm fine. Thank you.
1: Right. And so we've all had some good fun in the snow, I think. So today we are looking at the Stuarts. Last week in the podcast we looked at the Tudors and we saw there were problems with succession and with with religion with the Tudors and I think maybe we will see the same themes coming up again today. We, last week also we finished with the, talking about James the 1st of England who was James the 6th of Scotland who was the first Stuart king. Maybe best remembered for his Bible, the King James Bible. But I think we're going to start with um, John, who's going to tell us about Charles, the reign of Charles that came after James the I.
2: Um, so, yeah, we're looking at today um, the reign of Charles I, who Sheena has rightly pointed out was the son of James I of England, um, and the events that led up and the events throughout the English Civil War, or what has also been known as the War of Three Kingdoms, as it did take in England, Scotland, and Ireland. So there are a number of uh, background issues leading up to the, to the Civil War, uh, some of which we discussed last week. So during the reign of Elizabeth uh, and then James, we have the establishment and spread of the Protestant religion. In England and Scotland part um, of the wider Reformation in Europe we have wider access to education uh, we have quite a lot of economic changes we also see an increase in uh, the spread of literacy uh, and science so there's a lot of changes going on socially and economically but also politically and philosophically people are beginning to question the old ways new modes of living there's printing and literacy and all these things are combining along with the religious changes in society um, to really upset things that have been going on for you know for hundreds of years so lots of new ideas coming to the fore now unfortunately eventually for King Charles I he was a man who was quite wedded to the old ways of doing things now although he was a Protestant. Um, he believed very firmly in an idea called the divine right of kings, which is a, a political concept, uh, which meant that although there was at various times during his reign, a parliament, for long periods of his reign, he governed without any recourse to parliament. So he governed as, if you like, an old-fashioned king. What he said went, and he didn't really brook any uh, disagreements or any advice from the people who'd been elected to Parliament at various times. These kind of ideas, uh, if you like, old-fashioned ideas, were reflected in his attitudes to religion. So even though he was a Protestant, he sought to take the Church of England back to some, if you like, more Catholic ideas. He wanted churches to go back to a more Catholic way of worshipping. So when you think about things like stained glass in in churches and cathedrals and a lot of the ceremony that is involved in in, uh, the Catholic way of worship. This eventually caused problems um, because we had a lot of people in his realm at the time who were quite averse to this. They were known as Puritans. So as as the name kind of suggests, they were looking for a, a purer, more austere, more Protestant way of worshipping and Charles's interference in religious matters, uh, also the fact that he was married to a Catholic, uh, Queen Henrietta, kind of upset a lot of these Puritans, certainly upset a lot of people in Scotland who were more determined to keep a a more Protestant way of um, exercising their Christian faith. Uh, This came to a head in Scotland. Um, It came up against the Scottish... Um, Protestant church where he were trying to impose what was known as the common book of prayer he'd already imposed bishops on the Scots which they weren't very happy about but they managed to live with Um, took it really a step too far and really started to push his own religious agenda upon the Scottish people so anybody knows anything about the the scottish people they don't take too kindly to being bossed around and told what to do especially not by the english so there were political uh, ideas of state power coming up against each other combined with these religious ideas there was also the economic factor because eventually the scots raised an army and charles actually ended up fighting uh, in 1640 fighting wars Against Scotland to try and impose his religious ideas, so you've got political conflict, religious conflict, and then in order to raise the taxes, he had to go to Parliament and came into conflict with Parliament. As I said, Charles been sitting as a monarch for eleven years, from sixteen twenty nine to sixteen forty, without a Parliament. So he recalled Parliament in order to get them to raise the taxes to pay for the war with Scotland. Now. As we've mentioned before, the rise of the the group of people called the Puritans, a lot of the members of Parliament were Puritans, and they were very upset about Charles's religious behaviour, about his autocratic behaviour, and even though there were a Scottish army all the way down to Newcastle, they still refused to okay the taxes and the funding for Charles's army. Many people traditionally call this series of events the English Civil War, you'll see some historians will refer to it as the War of Three Kingdoms. So the three kingdoms being England, Scotland and Ireland. At the same time as these events are occurring, there was a Catholic rebellion in Ireland. So trouble right across the British Isles. Charles then goes into Parliament, actually physically goes in. uh, He's making demands on Parliament. Um, Several of the leading Uh, Puritans who were leading the resistance uh, who've been organised. Charles attempts to impose his will on Parliament and have these five ringleaders arrested. Uh, And this is effectively the spark that ignites the beginning of the three civil wars that we're going to be discussing. Uh, And interestingly today, anybody who ever watches uh, the opening ceremony, the state opening of Parliament, the, the English or British monarch still never sets foot in the House of Commons. She sends down her messenger to bang on the door and the House of Commons go up to see the Queen, the monarch. So that's quite an interesting precedent. So not since that day in um, 1642 as an English monarch actually set foot inside our Parliament. So that's the beginning of the Civil War. These events led to conflict across the country and by August 1642, the King raised the Royal Standard in Nottingham uh, and that date marked the actual beginning of the civil war. Uh, At this point, the country split into two opposing camps. So you had the people who supported the king, uh, who were known as cavaliers, and the people who supported the parliament, who became known due to their steel helmets, became known as the roundheads. So in English popular imagination, uh, we always think of the cavaliers and the roundheads. The cavaliers with kind of long hair and dandy clothes, and the roundheads being quite austere and Puritan.
1: Wow. So, John, can you tell us what happened next?
2: So, the war broke out, okay, so right across England, as we said, people were split into different camps, so different parts of England, different people, different classes in society took the sides in the war. One of the, the most important things that happened, that a guy called Oliver Cromwell, who'd been one of the leading parliamentarians, rose to lead the parliamentary army. As I said, Cromwell was a Puritan, one of the one of the leading Puritans, been a member of Parliament from East Anglia in the southeast of England. Um, and he established his reputation really during the Civil War as a great military and political leader. At the start of the Civil War, the armies were fighting in a in a very traditional sense. So they had lords and princes, one thing or another, they would raise armies from the people who lived on their land and take them into battle. Cromwell's revolutionary idea was that he brought up ordinary men, and it didn't matter really what social class they were from, but if they were good soldiers, if they were good leaders, if they were good organisers, he gave them the chance to fight. Uh, And one of the most important things, really, and and that led to the parliamentary victory, the people who were fighting for Cromwell, they weren't mercenaries, um, they weren't press-ganged into fighting, they were fighting through a real belief, uh, that God was on their side, that they were fighting for their religious freedom and their political freedom. So this uh, new force became known as the New Model Army and they were instrumental in delivering victory eventually for the for the parliamentarian cause.
1: So what happened at the end of the war?
2: Well, through, throughout the, the, the next few years, up to 1645, various battles were fought, Um Concluding with the Battle of Naseby, a very famous battle. Now the king and his forces were defeated. Something that occurred in 1647 was, which was known, became known as the Putney Debates. The, the victorious New Model Army um, came together as a very important political force. So this was the first time uh, in English history that the army had, had had so much political power. So a lot of these people who fought in the army. With the onset of widespread printing and the dissemination of pamphlets and literature and the widespread literacy in the army, a lot of these people started to come out with some very radical ideas, some some very interesting discussions in these Putney debates and wider throughout the army about what should happen now. We've defeated the king, we, parliament is victorious, ideas about basically every man Fortunately, it was only men at the time, Sheena, but every man or every household in the country to have a vote and to have regular parliaments and to have a written constitution. So if anybody who thinks about French history, American history and their revolutions, these radical political ideas from the mid-1600s weren't just influential in, in British history. They kind of formed the seed in many ways of, you know, the development of democracy and the revolutions in America in France in, in centuries to come um, during this time 1647 Charles escaped from prison he must or the second civil War as we as we come to know it reignited he was again defeated and in January 1649 he was condemned to death as a traitor and a tyrant who had shed the blood of his own people now Charles was beheaded in January 1649 this is a, a monumental uh, historic event in british history not just british but world history it's the first time i mean you know kings and monarchs had killed each other before and they've been assassinated before but to actually be put on trial effectively by the people and to be executed in that sort of legal way through due process was absolutely revolutionary um so that really brought well it certainly brought charles the first reign to an end um as we've discussed though previously, we our kings and queens have heirs. That's the, their children who were their successors. So we ended up with yet another uh, episode of civil war, the third civil war, which took place largely in Ireland, because Charles's uh, son, Charles II, had escaped and subsequently been proclaimed king of Ireland. Now this is where we've talked obviously quite a lot about Oliver Cromwell. Um, this Campaign in Ireland, where he took the new model army to defeat the rump royalist forces and the Irish Catholics. Um, this has been in a, a series of events that's really tarnished um, Cromwell's um, historic reputation, because quite a lot of the, the conduct of the armies um, was was very brutal during the war in Ireland. Some historians have. Uh, even likened it to to modern-day ethnic cleansing or genocide that we might have seen in in the 20th 20th century. Um, So to this day in Ireland, Cromwell is a a very, very divisive figure, Uh, and we still see a lot of historical controversy about these events. Um, Following his defeat of the Irish and the Royalists, the Scots also accepted Charles II as king, so he raises an army in Scotland. Eventually, finally defeated by Cromwell at the Battle of Worcester, Charles escapes, okay, into exile in Europe. This finally finally puts an end to the series of civil wars, the War of the Three Kingdoms. But we don't have a king for the first time in thousands and thousands of years. What do we do? England is declared a commonwealth, i.e. a republic. So this is, again, a revolutionary stage in not just British but world history. So England now declared a republic. There's no king. Various of the parliamentarians approached Cromwell and asked him if he would become king. But obviously, on a point of principle, he couldn't see this. He'd fought against the king and against his autocratic ideas. So what happened? He was declared as Lord Protector. So a kind of king in all but name, really. Uh, And he presided over the the new Commonwealth, the Republic, until his death in 1658, at which point he was succeeded by his son, Richard Cromwell, who, um, unable, like his father, to control the army and parliament, um, really didn't have a a very successful reign at all. He was only in power for, for two years. And eventually we move on to a period as what is known as the Restoration. So there was clamour for people to return to some form of normality. And I think Mark's going to go on and tell us about this, about the reintroduction of the monarchy um, under the kingship of Charles II.
1: That's great, John. Thank you so much. And Mark, now it's over to you to tell us about the Restoration.
0: Well, thank you very much, Sheena. Um, so, as John was saying, uh Charles II, Charles at this stage was in Europe. He was in what's called exile in Europe. So he was, in a way, hiding away in Europe because there was no king um, in England at the time. Um, But because Cromwell's son was really not a very good leader, Cromwell had been a very successful leader, but his son really wasn't. In the end, it was Parliament who actually invited Charles II to come back and to become king again, to restore uh, the monarchy. So Charles was invited back um, and... There was an interesting period of British history there where Charles is king again. Um, a couple of the things that happened during his time, which are particularly of interest. One is there was something called the Great Plague, uh, in which thousands of people died from uh, from this uh, terrible illness that struck large parts of the population, particularly the poor.
1: Would would you say that's a bit like COVID now, Mark?
0: Yes, in some ways it is. It's an example of how there have been viruses that have appeared at various times during history and have actually had um, a a devastating impact on on the population. And and that certainly was the case with the plague. And today we're living through uh, another one of those. Luckily, we're in a better place with our knowledge of medicine and, and, and how to care for people um, to, to, to cope with that. But in, back in those days, thousands and thousands of people died. And the following year was the Great Fire of London. So as if the plague wasn't enough, there was this enormous fire that went through the May, the, the the central part of the city of London, burnt down many of the famous um, churches and bridges, um, which then had to be rebuilt afterwards. So that that or that happened during the period of, of Charles the Second. He dies, and James the Second then takes over as king. Now, James is a Catholic. Charles had been a Protestant. James was a Catholic. So now there were problems again around religion. Now, the daughter of Charles was called Mary and she had married William of Orange. So he was effectively the king of the Netherlands part of Europe there quite a powerful nation at the time and he was a Protestant so Mary had married into a Protestant family and uh, many of the Protestants in England particularly in the Parliament who were very unhappy with the idea of James a Catholic taking over as king decided to invite William to invade England so William and Mary come over and they invade England. But actually, there is no real fighting because he'd been invited in. There wasn't any serious fighting and James saw what was going to happen and he fled. He went off to France, uh, which was a Catholic country. So he he left and uh, William became the new king. And that is known as the Glorious Revolution. So, this is a new line of kings starting. Um, it was a glorious revolution because there was very little violence. It happened in a in a relatively peaceful way. William also had came in with modern and new ideas that worked well with uh, what had come out of the Civil War now. That's not to say there weren't some difficulties. And in fact, James had support in both Ireland and Scotland. And so there was then fighting and William had to defeat James in both of those countries, armies that were supporting James in both of those countries. And uh, one of the most famous battles of those in Ireland was known as the Battle of the Boyne in 1690. And that's where William defeated the Catholic army of James in in Ireland. And that is a a battle that is still celebrated today by what is known as the Orange Order. That is the organisation of Protestants in in Northern Ireland. Um, William, who is crowned as the new king and the. Many people recognise that period as the beginning of what we might call a constitutional monarchy.
1: So how does that compare with what we have today, Mark?
0: Well, you can trace much of our current system de- back to that period, although it was clearly very different. But it was the beginnings of in, in what you could call a partnership between the monarchy and parliament. So... Uh, The king was still very powerful in this period, but he recognised a legitimate, a fair role for parliament. And this began to get written down into law. Um, And there was a Bill of Rights that set out some of the powers of uh, both the king and of parliament. Um, It was a period when... um, the idea of people having a fair trial comes in where you have to have regular elections for parliament. Now, we have to say a very different parliament than we have today because it was very much the rich landowners, the aristocracy, those people with titles who were part of parliament, not the common people at all. But it was the beginning of recognising that there was a role for parliament and a role for the king and so many in many ways it's the beginning of what becomes known as a constitutional monarchy and i think that's where we're probably going to leave it for today right
1: that's great what what a dramatic piece of history we've discussed today but also a profoundly important piece of history that i am sure will have repercussions for many years
0: Language support. This is the part of the podcast where I choose a few words and phrases from the episode and explain them in a bit more detail. There were quite a few interesting phrases we use today. Early on, when we were introducing ourselves, Sheena said she was snowed in. That really just means that there was so much snow around that it was difficult to get out of the house. Uh, Probably would mean difficult to go anywhere in your car because the roads were covered in snow. John talked about one of the kings being wedded to the old ways. That means stuck doing the things the way they used to be done. To be wedded to is to be stuck to, to be continuing to do something even when other things are changing. Then John used a rather old-fashioned phrase, but you do still hear it now. He said that the king didn't brook any disagreement. To brook as a verb means to put up with so the king wouldn't put up with anybody who disagreed with him. Later, John said that the arguments had, uh, the, the arguments came to a head. If something comes to a head, it means it gets to the point where people can't tolerate it anymore, when something else has got to happen. Later on, John talked about some some of the ideas which were being debated after the Civil War. And he said they formed the seed of democracy and revolution in places like France and the USA. So to form the seed of something means it began some of the ideas. So it's the idea of seeds being planted in the ground and then growing into something much more significant. So those ideas were the seeds and out of them grew democracy and revolution in some other countries. Finally, I wanted to highlight three adjectives that were used, all of which... I used where you want to describe something that is very strong or a very extreme version of something. So John talked about the monumental events that were taking place. So monumental means enormous, very large, in this case very significant events. So they were monumental Sheena talked about a dramatic period of history. If something is dramatic, it's something that happens suddenly or surprisingly, like a drama, that is a, a, fic, a play that might be put on in a theatre. So lots of the events that were happening there were like being in a drama, but like being in a, in a play. They were dramatic events. And finally, I talked about the devastating impact of the plague. If something is devastating, then it is very damaging, very destructive. So there are three very strong, less usual adjectives that you might find useful to use in those extreme circumstances. That's it for this week. You can find the transcript, that's the written version of this episode, on our website www.staugustincentrehalifax.org.uk and that's where you can also find links to all the other episodes and the transcripts so you can listen and read along at the same time. That's also where you can find out how to donate to help our work. We are a charity supporting particularly refugees, asylum seekers and migrants, but also all those in need in our local area. And uh, we would welcome your support if you felt able to give it. If you follow on the website the links to Get Involved and Donate. We also have an email address that's English for Life in the UK at gmail.com. And we would love to hear from you, your thoughts on our podcast and ideas for the future. We also have a Twitter account at Esol Saint, and there is additional material on that site. I'll spell out all those addresses. So the website WWW dot s t a u G U S T I N E S C E N T R E H A L I F A X. .org.uk So that's the website. The email is English for life in the UK at gmail.com and that's English for spelt for And finally the Twitter account is at capital e s o l capital S-A-I-N-T